<laughs> that was, uh, I've never stuck my tongue to a pole, but that kind of describes my childhood, I think. With all of the buddies that I had in my neighborhood, there was always somebody was trying to one-up somebody and, and to dare somebody. I remember when I was growing up, the big thing was uh, dirt bikes. That was a huge thing. It's, this was past the, remember the, remember the bikes that had like the banana seat on it and the bar on the back? Okay, they don't, they don't know that. I know that. I had a bike like that. But then you graduated from that and you went to a dirt bike and rode it out in, the, out in the woods and you did jumps and all these kind of things. And all of my buddies could do it, but not me. Uh, I mean, I try as I might, I, they dared me to finally do, go over this jump and I landed on my face in the mud. Yeah, it was terrible. It was terrible. But, you know, I didn't want to be left out. I didn't want to be that person that wouldn't take the dare, that didn't have the courage to do the thing and to follow in uh, the footsteps of my, of my peers. That's, that was just a rough time. Uh, Christmas, the Christmas story. This is uh, going to be our focus throughout uh, our, our series. And the, this, this, this story that is very much similar to all of our stories. We, have, we each have a story that we write. And in that story, God comes in the form of Jesus Christ. We call this the incarnation. And he inter- his story intersects our story. And so that's going to be a lot of our focus. What's, what was the most memorable Christmas gift that you got last year? I'm looking at your faces, and I already saw some. I don't remember what I got for Christmas last year. <laughs> all I remember was the living room floor was covered with all kinds of wrapping paper, and the memory of that gift is all lost in that. And I think that's probably a lot of our experience. Or perhaps, just like Ralphie, uh, you got a gift that somebody gave you because they loved you and they cared for you, but it was this pink nightmare that comes out. It's like, oh my goodness, I would never wear that in my entire life. And we've probably all received gifts like that as well. We don't remember a lot of those gifts. We, we should forget some of the gifts. And perhaps there was one or two in our lifetime that we think, okay, that was a memorable gift that I received. Now, please understand, I, I, want, I, don't, I want to make light of gift giving in just this moment and receiving I don't want to belittle, though, the meaning and the heart that we each strive to work towards in the gifts that we give. Nor do I want to make commentary on what I think is the correct way to give gifts and so dash all of your traditions and your intentions. We have enough Scrooges and Grinches in the world that I don't need to be like that with you this morning. What I do want to acknowledge, though, is that the Christmas season for some is not the most wonderful time of the year, right? There are times in our lives for every one of us that Christmas can be kind of the downer, and that's unfortunate. And as I intercede for others in my prayer journal, I realize that many of us are just trying to make it through the Christmas season. Frustration and anxiety that the holiday season for us actually amplifies our sadness and our grief. So we try to numb our spirit and our heart with feel-good movies and music. 
endless celebrations and buying gifts for the other to get affirmations, maybe we might feel a little bit better about ourselves. We might forget about it for a while. We might forget about our sadness. We, we might forget about this baggage that we carry because of the numbness that we have. But in the end, that same brokenness is still going to be there at the end of the season, right? And even perhaps we feel worse because our efforts to create something that was memorable, that would cover over that pain, is still there. And we feel like we failed at the end of the season, what do you wish for? What, do you, what is your wish this Christmas? What I desire the most is for Jesus to come into our brokenness, for his love to transform our world and bring us hope. It seems so far off, but this is what the incarnation means. It's Jesus' good story. In Isaiah Chapter 7, we find, we find the words of the prophet that just ring in our ears during, during this season. Isaiah chapter 7, starting at, uh, and verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. We just sang about that. Do we dare? Do we dare to hope? Do we dare to hope? This is often the verse that we associate uh, with the prophet Isaiah and believe that he has some kind of foreknowledge of the Messiah. And yet, while God was certainly speaking through his prophets, all of the prophets, and anticipating what is going to happen in these words, he's speaking in his own time nine centuries before the birth of Jesus. Even so, I want to suggest that the notion of God's sign in the birth of a child speaks to the radical meaning of Christmas for us in ways that may illuminate faith in our troubled world. God comes to us. He dwells with us, and he brings us hope. So let's, let's begin with Isaiah's context. Let's go back to chapter 7 and start at verse 1. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin and Aram and, Pe and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim, so the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind." That doesn't sound like very much of a Christmas story uh, to begin our series with, but that's where it begins. <laughs> this is Isaiah. He, he, is, he is coming and he is seeing Ahaz, who is the king of Judah. And he is, he is looking out at Jerusalem. And, and he's looking beyond and he's seeing these armies that are coming against him and against his people. And he is living in fear. And he walks around. He walks around the city in anticipation of the siege, and he describes the fear of his people as if they were trees that were shaking in the wind. They are fearful. It's like shaking in your boots kind of a fear that they have. And, and what he's doing as he is seeing that fear, and he is this king, he is somebody who he, he is in charge of caring for these people. He, he is contemplating, I should ally myself with a more powerful kingdom so that we can come up against this. 
I, I think that that can be very real for us, right? When we look at, when we look at our lives and we see these eminent attacks, this, this sadness, this brokenness that comes in, and we try to figure out a way, how can, I, how can I make things right? How can I make myself happy and those around me? How can I please those around me so that it can kind of cover over what we see coming at us? And then Isaiah will go on to say in verse 3, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out, you and your son, Shir Jeshub. That is the strangest name to give your child. (laughs) (laughs) To meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. Isaiah is therefore sent by God to meet this frightened king. And, And he... God asks him, take your son with you. Take your baby. <laughs> and he takes this son who has this strange name, very strange name, which means a remnant shall return. If you have your, go down to your footnotes in your Bible, you'll find it. A remnant shall return. Hold that up here for just a second. In the context, this is rather, rather unsettling. Here is Ahaz who <clears throat> is looking out at these armies He's living in fear as well as all of the other people. And Isaiah brings his son named, and a remnant shall return. What does that mean? <laughs> it means exile. It means there's going, why would there be this prophecy that a remnant shall return if they're not going to be going into exile? If they're not going to be defeated, defeated and people will die as a result. So the name of the boy puts the king on notice. The thing that you are worrying about, it's actually going to get worse, Ahaz. It's going to get worse for you. This is what wakes me up at night. I don't know about you, but when you think about that thing that you worry about, there have been times recently where I wake up a half hour before my alarm. I hate that. Usually you want to, you hear the alarm and you hit the snooze button, but then you wake up 30 minutes before your alarm or 20 minutes or 10 minutes and you're like, why? I could have had more time to sleep. But then in your mind, in my mind, there's all of these things that I'm worried about and I, and I double down on it. Like I, it, it just, I, I worry about more things and how can I fix this and I'm not going to be able to fix this and I might as well get up. I might as well get up. Your imagination gets the best of you. And I'm sure that that's where Ahaz is, is feeling as he looks out over here and then Isaiah comes to him with his son named, and a remnant will return. Well, that would be worse. I'm glad he has this name. Isaiah goes on in verse 4 Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood, because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and of your son, Remaliah. Isaiah is basically saying to Ahaz, I double dog dare you to trust God. With what you see, Isaiah knows that it's going to get much worse. And 
he's saying to Ahaz, don't give in to this. He urges the king not to put his trust in an alliance with a greater power, but in the promise of the Lord. And he invites Ahaz to ask for a sign that will help him make his act of trust. Instead of allowing those dreams to take over his mind and his, and his heart and his spirit, he's saying, Ahaz, rest in the Lord. Don't you try to take control of this thing because you won't be able to control it. But trust God. We're going to go down to verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Basically, what he's saying is, I'm not going to trust God. I'm not going to take him at his word. And he, and he replies with pious avoidance. That's what I want to call it. It is like, I'm, I, 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 don't, I don't need this. And it, what it is, it is it's stubbornness. We, we find ourselves there as well, don't we? When we're, when we're faced with the thing that we fear, we want to try to control it rather than trusting. And so we're stubborn about it. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, we, we know what Jer or Isaiah's son's name means, a remnant will return. But then now Isaiah talks about this other name that is translated, what? God with us. God with us. So, and Isaiah is exasperated with Ahaz. <laughs> He's like, your stubbornness. All right. Don't ask. The Lord's going to give you a sign. And after more than 2,000 years of Christian reading, it's hard for us not to hear this as referring to the virgin birth. From Isaiah's point of view, however, the sign's crucial element concerns not the birth itself, but the child, whose name means God with us. Only a few verses earlier, there's been a mention of a child with an ominous name, that remnant shall return. Here, though, is promised a child whose birth brings significance because it brings reassurance of the core conviction that God is present in and with Israel as defender, guardian, and protector so that Israel will not need to be afraid. This child is going to be a reminder of the story that God laid out from the beginning of time. I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. And Isaiah goes on to describe what it's going to be like. He said, this child, he will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right... The land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. There's no sense this child will himself become a king or Israel's rescuer. That, there's nothing there in that. The function of the child 
in this story, as we look at the text, simply means to bear the name and to be a marker of the time frame of the current threat, a time that will be short indeed. In other words, those words of Isaiah are, and this too shall pass, right? We've heard those things before. It's hard for us to hear when we're in the middle of our worry, but Isaiah is saying, even before this child grows up, the thing that you fear is not going to be there anymore. It's going to pass, and we're going to be to the next chapter of our story. But Ahaz won't believe it. And Isaiah issues an invitation to have faith in the promise that God is going to be with him. He triple-dog dares Ahaz. The king, but the king cannot make the transition from panic to trust, from fear to faith. He seeks his security in Assyria instead, and as the book of Isaiah interprets subsequent events, the results are disastrous because he won't listen to those words. And we do the same. We seek our security in others, in other things that we think that we can control rather than waiting and being patient. Well, at one level, it's all pretty obscure, at least this story in Isaiah, where the central verse is one that we hold on to about God being with us. But here's what strikes me. I think of Ahaz, aware of armies amassing outside of his city and and his people shaking like the trees in fear and the suffering that will come. And they're impotent, awaiting the breaking of this storm upon their nation. And then I think of what the prophet offers as a sign that all will be well, the birth of a child with a reassuring name, God with us. To an unknown woman in an unknown time. And we're going to talk about that in a couple weeks. And that's what he's supposed to trust. That is this, is this what it is? This, this child who has an obscure name? Born to a woman who is unknown? How do I trust in that? Is this God's response? It seems, if you think about it, think about it. I mean, it's hard in our context because when we celebrate Christmas, we know the end of the story. But at the front end of it, when you, when you and I enter into this with our worries and the things that we cannot control, we cannot figure out, this prophecy seems, seems utterly, absurdly, laughably inadequate to the situation that we face. It's a ground for trust that looks no like no ground at all. Are you kidding? Why would I trust in that? And for me, perhaps that's what Christmas can feel like too. Our world is broken. And with the effects of impotent leaders in our world, we reap the harvest of their criminal negligence, vacillation, foolishness, and corruption. And when it trickles down, it affects all of us in the way that we live and we perceive our world. And we don't know, we do not know what is to come. 
And we are asked to believe that a child born for us over 2,000 years ago, a child named God with us, is grounds for trust, is light in this darkness, and offers us a way to follow. It seems utterly, absurdly, laughably inadequate to our situation. And yet, how else do we expect God to show up I think our tendency is to think that God would come and invade, that he would overpower, that he's going to take matters into his own hands and stuff it up. And, is, he will, and if that is the case, then God would be a tyrant, even if it's apparently for our good. This is a false, sacred image of God. This is not the kind of worry, war, warrior not warrior, <laughs> victorious warrior that we follow. The only God that's not a projection of infantile, infantile fantasy, the only God who is real is discovered in our brokenness, our vulnerability, and our prayer. And this God is present. This is the God that acts only even after, with uh, only ever from the within of things, seeking our consent, inviting our participation, as God acted within and through Isaiah and Mary and Jesus Christ. So the question for us, the question for me this Christmas is whether I dare to keep faith with this promised presence, to allow it to do the thing that it, it will do if I will dare, triple dog dare, <laughs> to have hope again, to trust that in the midst of my vulnerability and my pain that he is doing something beautiful and he's giving me the greatest gift, and that is his presence his transformative presence. Can I take heart and refuse to despair? Keeping faith in this way is not a guarantee of rescue. It does not remove one iota of our responsibility for engaging the crisis of our time or imply that we must do, not do everything in our power to avert catastrophe, speak truth, act wisely, and with urgency. It means simply that in the midst of it all, we commit to remaining ourselves broken open to God, looking to join in God's eternally giving life because Christmas means that. No matter what befalls, God is. God is with us and his love abides in us. Dare we believe in that? Dare we? Isaiah said to Ahaz in verse 9, if you do not stand firm in faith, you will not stand at all. This Christmas, as we too tremble sometimes, as I know I do, like the trees of the forest shaking in the wind, I pray that we may discover the strength in our vulnerability, practice this courage and trust, and so be with God as God promises to be with us. Church, I triple dog dare us 
to trust in this God, to hold on to that hope that he gives us. This is the greatest gift. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you, Father, for your good news. For the anticipation, Father, of of the gift that you give us through your presence this Christmas season. That we will understand Emmanuel, God with us. And we will see the good thing that you are doing among us. Thank you for your love for us that calls us your beloved sons and daughters. In Jesus' name, amen.